Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-host, Melissa Colston. Hello there. And today's episode focuses on spies. Appropriately enough, there's been lots of spy stories in the news lately. Yes. <laughs> yes, there has been. <laughs> So our brains were we're focused on that, and we hope yours are too. So I'm going to just go ahead and kick it off with my first book, and it's called Who is Vera Kelly by Rosalie Nett. Who is Vera Kelly opens in 1957, Maryland, where the high school-aged Vera has just attempted suicide. The next chapter jumps to 1966 in Buenos Aires, Argentina, where Vera is working undercover for the CIA. Posing as a Canadian graduate student named Anne, Vera infiltrates student radicals that she suspects are involved in a bomb plot masterminded by the KGB. She also spends long days in her office above a cafe, listening to wiretaps of Argentinian officials. The novel's chapters alternate between Maryland where young Vera grapples with an abusive mother and her own sexuality, and in Argentina on the cusp of revolution. The juxtaposition of Vera's backstory, told in concise, tense chapters, with the Argentina story, highlights the parallels between her life as a closeted lesbian and her life as an undercover spy. Vera, we soon realize, isn't safe in either life. Quote, for a long time already, I had been half a step from the edge of a cliff, Vera says. That was how I lived. I did not look over. Unquote. The novel suspense heightens following the June 1966 coup. The government bans foreigners from leaving the country, and Vera must rely on her own wits and courage to escape. This is a Cold War spy novel, rich with both suspense and character development that nods to the genre's tropes while also subverting them. Though the story takes place in an earlier era, Vera Kelly is a heroine for our time. The characters in this novel mostly subsist on cigarettes and instant coffee, <laughs> which I wouldn't recommend to either of those things. Um, but at one point, the student radicals invite Vera to a birthday party for beer and choripanes. And mm, choripan. I love choripan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a provisional party, Vera says, a weak approximation of the cookout in the country that they would have had under better circumstances if the streets were not full of soldiers and police and every cabbie in the city weren't charging double after dark. Fortunately, our political climate isn't so bad that we can't have a cookout in the country or in our backyards. So while the weather's still nice enough for gilling, get grilling, give choripanas a try. They're basically an Argentinian hot dog made with grilled chorizo, covered in chimichurro sauce, and eaten on a baguette. My husband and I made some this past weekend, and they were so good, he sent photos to two of his best friends from college. They're amazing. <laughs> we are not, you know, food taking pictures of our food kind of people, because we <laughs> like to just eat the food and not take pictures of it. But uh, we both took pictures of this. We, neither of us had had them before. I mean, we'd had chorizo, but never the 
homemade chimichurri sauce. Um, anyway, um, I also heated it up for leftovers in the break room here and got several everybody, <laughs> everybody commenting on it yes everyone <laughs> wanted to know what i was what i was making so um we'll link to some recipes on our blog where'd you get the sausages um i think he got them at at the co-op they were they were a local sausage i can't remember it might have been critchfield's um because oh, that's um a friend of mine lived in Buenos Aires for about a year and a half, and my now husband and I went to visit her while she was there, and we ate a lot of choripan. Mm-hmm. And did you slice it and then grill it flat, too? Because that really takes it to another level. Um, my husband did the grilling part, and he just Well, for the them. next time, <laughs> you grill them until they're almost cooked, and then take them off the grill, slice them lengthwise, almost all the way through, but not quite, and then flatten them down, put it flat, the cut side on the grill, and it crisps up mm. in the most delicious way. And then it, it gives the chimichurri even more crevices to sink down into. Yeah, that makes sense. Because it's all about the chimichurri. The crispy sausage and the crusty baguette. It's just a magical combination. <laughs> I'm so glad that you ate that. <laughs> yeah, and we, um, it will probably be um, not a regular repertoire because I don't know, we don't eat sausage that often, but, um, you know, given the it's reception, worth the it, it, oh yeah, for sure. for sure. Yeah, so definitely. Recommend a little celebratory food mm-hmm. <laughs> for a not very celebratory novel. <laughs> so when I was considering what books to talk about for this edition of the podcast, I immediately thought, of Codename Verity, partially because I haven't read that many books about spies, and that one's so good. Um, but then also, after reading The Alice Network by Kate Quinn, I thought that they would make just an excellent pairing. Although all three books in the Codename Verity series by Elizabeth Bean, I looked that up, how to pronounce that, <laughs> Bean, um, although all of the books are excellent, um, I'll just be talking about the first book for the purpose of this purposes of this comparison, um, just because they line up so well. Both Codename Verity and The Alice Network focus on female friendship during wartime, and both feature female spies, which I think is just fantastic. In Codename Verity, our main character is Maddie, a pilot who is recruited to fly lower priority flights during World War II. Lower priority because she's a woman and she's also quite young. That assignment puts her in contact with Julie, who just so happens to be a spy operating in France. She's also a young woman, so their friendship is quick and easy. The story of their friendship is told from each character's perspective and is absolutely riveting. Bean is a pilot herself, so the novel is full of vivid accounts of flying and what it was like to fly a small engine aircraft during the war. Be warned, however, that Codename Verity will break your heart. It's worth the grief, but it's definitely brutal. Everyone that I've had read it or recommended read it has come back to me with just like tears streaming down their face. It's, <laughs> it's brutal. Um, 
have to be in the right frame of mind. You do. You have to be prepared. <laughs> like, if you know it going in, I'm not going to tell you what the heartbreak is. You just know that it, you know, it's not a happy ending. Um, but the Alice Network uh, is, a, is a little bit lighter, sort of. I don't know. It also focuses on female friendship in wartime, this time featuring featuring. Evelyn Gardner during her time as a spy in France during World War One, and then as a reluctant detective after World War Two. Much of the Alice Network is based in reality and taken from historical accounts of the real Alice Network, which did exist, and court documents of the trial that is detailed in the novel. The story pulled me in immediately and kept up a relentless pace all the way through the end. I'm not quite as fond of the characters in the Alice Network as I am in Codename Verity, but the novels make a really nice pair. Codename Verity is written for young adults, but many would argue it works equally well for not-so-young adults, and everyone that has come back to me crying has definitely not been a young adult. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as mad as they are for me at me for making them read it, they're also, you know, heart has expanded three times, like the Grinch kind of thing. Um, <laughs> It is, it has a lighter tone, you know, it's written for young adults, so it's jokey, and um, there's some all caps writing, you know, those kinds of things. It's, it's not, um, it's just clearly written for young adults. Um, but the Alice Network, on the other hand, details rape, torture, generalized violence, and the humor is there, but it's definitely darker. Um, so... If you've read Codename Verity, I would recommend The Alice Network if you want you know, more in that vein of things. Um, and same for Alice Network if you want something a little bit lighter. <laughs> Maybe go with Codename Verity. And its sequel and prequel are also excellent. And I would hearty, heartily recommend the whole series to anyone. Um, but as for what to pair with it, the main characters in both books are British of some variety. English or Scottish. And I definitely needed comforting after reading both of them. <laughs> so I would recommend enjoying a hot cup of tea or a hot toddy while reading it. If you want to get fancy with your hot toddy, check out the Dead Rabbit Grocery and Grog Drinks Manual, written by two fellas from Belfast. Their version uses a peated Irish whiskey and other ingredients to get close to the complexity of a good tea, but I prefer a simpler squeeze of lemon, drizzle of honey, and a hearty glug of bourbon straight into a mug of hot tea. It's hard to go wrong with any of that. <laughs> Very often when I'm having a hot toddy, I'm a little sick, so complex drinks are out yeah. of the picture. But, <laughs> Maybe um, you can have someone make you a complex. Sure, if you want to get fancy with it. I just thought it was, I, I found that recipe and was like, oh, that, that's interesting. They don't even use tea. They just use all this other stuff. Hmm. So there you go. For a real-life Soviet point of view on the Cold War, read Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking by Anya von Bremsen. It combines memoir, history, and recipes to create a book that is original and utterly absorbing. Born in Moscow in 1963, von Bremsen immigrated to America with her anti-Soviet mother in 1973. 
For mastering the art of Soviet cooking, von Bremsen and her mother, quote, embark on a year-long journey unlike any other, eating and cooking our way through decade after decade of Soviet life, unquote. They begin their project with 1910's Tsarist Russia and end it with a 2011 trip to Putin's Russia. In between are wars, famine, communal living, and what von Bremsen calls, quote, poignant, improbable feasts, unquote. In one of the most harrowing chapters, 1940s of Bullets and Bread, von Bremsen describes how her mother's family survived the brutal years of World War II. Her grandfather, Nam, was a Soviet spy, or counterintelligence worker, as he keeps correcting his family. <laughs> as a supervisor for the Naval Commissariat in Moscow, Nam was both a, a beneficiary of interior purges and a target for them. Quote, tailed by the secret police almost continuously, von Bremsen writes, he perfected the art of vanishing into courtyards, of jumping onto fast-moving trolleys, unquote. In the back of the book, von Bremsen provides a recipe for each decade covered, making an exception for the 1940s, when she simply includes a photo of a ration card to honor all those who died of starvation. I am most intrigued by the 1950s dish of chinaki, or Georgian stew of lamb, herbs, and vegetables, even though it was reportedly Stalin's favorite dish. However, the 1970s dish of salad olivier, or Russian potato salad with pickles, is probably the most emblematic of Soviet cooking. The recipe began as a fancy czarist concoction, but eventually morphed into one suited for more humble celebrations. Quote, chicken replaced the class enemy grouse, von Bremsen writes. Proletarian carrots stood in for the original pink of the crayfish, and potatoes and canned peas took center stage. The whole drenched in our own tangy, mass-produced Provencal mayo. Unquote. <laughs> I was wondering how you would proletariatize potato salad. <laughs> <laughs> it is, I have not tried either of those recipes. I'm not really a fan of mayonnaise heavily mayonnaise potato salads, but you know, it it could be good. <laughs> that, that cookbook sounds sounds like a journey. It, it truly is. It is, you know, it gives a, a little bit of the history as well as, you know, some personal stories behind it. And it's, it really, if you don't know much about Russian history, it really opens your eyes to how difficult, um, they've had it over the years wow yeah i'm gonna have to look, take take a look at that one for and sure. all with food in the background yeah my <laughs> favorite <laughs> so like i said i i hadn't really read all that many spy novels before um, getting ready for this episode of the podcast. So I went in search of either lesser known books or books about female spies, just, you know, not your average Jason Bourne type. Right. 
type dudely kind of thing. Um, but when it, what ended up catching my eye um, were those that I that have already been adapted for film or television, just because it, you know, I kind of knew what I was getting into. Um, there were there were several that I I picked out and was excited about, but didn't have a chance to actually read, um, including Codename Villanelle by Luke Jennings, which I grabbed because the show, have you seen Killing Eve? Mm-hmm. I think it was, it's a BBC production, but the show is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I've heard, the book isn't quite as good as the show, actually. Um, but I added it to my list, and maybe I'll get around to it. Um, the other two are Strangers on a Bridge and Bridge of Spies, which formed the source material for the Tom Hanks movie, Bridge of Spies. Um, So those are are three books that I didn't actually get around to, but are, you know, if you've seen those movies or those TV, that TV show, um, know that those are based on books. In the end, however, I chose to listen to The Widow Spy by Martha D. Peterson, and I'm so glad I did. We only have it on audio through Hoopla, but I really enjoyed it listening to it. Uh, Peterson's writing style is very straightforward, almost like she's filing a report, and the narrator does a pretty good job of keeping it engaging, even though it is so, like, report-like. Peterson was the first female agent sent to Moscow in the mid-1970s, and she worked there on an important mission collecting information from a compromised Russian national. A great deal of what she was able to accomplish was made possible because of her status as a woman. They weren't paying attention to her the way they would have paid it, they, the way that they did pay attention to men. Um, and for that reason, she basically was, she went without surveillance by the Soviets the entire time she was in Russia. Wow. <laughs> um, so she, she was able to be pretty instrumental in this one important mission. Um, if you've seen the TV show The Americans at all, uh, another excellent show, my pitch to you is that this book is almost the story of the Jennings, the main two characters in The the Americans. It's almost the story of their handler, Claudia, if Claudia was an American stationed in Russia. She was kind of her counterpart. Um, Also, don't tell me anything about Claudia or The Americans because I've only seen the first season. (laughs) We're working on it, but it is not an easy show to watch. Uh, It's so good, but it's so heavy. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't I haven't watched it, but I've I've heard that it's that it's good and heavy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting too, especially now with all of the political intrigue around Russia again, Mm -hmm. Um, and listening to the widow spy it's another one of those like if you don't know that much history you know this is going to give you some context and some background to that and she is she's called the widow spy or i guess she titled it the widow spy because her husband had been um, stationed in laos during the vietnam war and after the vietnam war doing a very similar job and after he died in a helicopter crash she came back and started working for the CIA, mm-hmm. eventually getting posted to Moscow. It's a really interesting story. Um, I think it, you know, from what I've seen, like the re- reviews are kind of mixed, but I thought it was really great to listen to just because, like, there's still a fair amount of suspense there, mm-hmm. even though 
like you know that she survives <laughs> you know right <laughs> like the the story you know basically how it ends but having that perspective of a woman working in Russia during those years is I just thought it was fascinating so highly recommend listening to The Widow of Spar yeah sounds really interesting So the last book I wanted to talk about addresses a different kind of spying, the electronic surveillance that happens when we use social media and the internet. The book is called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media, for your social media Accounts Right Now, and it's by Jaron Lanier, a computer scientist, writer, and virtual reality pioneer. In brief chapters with titles such as You Are Losing Your Free Will and Social Media <laughs> is Making Politics Impossible, he's not really subtle. <laughs> with and it's this. not funny, really. <laughs> no, it, it is laughing, a little funny. But it's not funny. <laughs> um, also, I'm reading the uh, friendly for audio versions <laughs> of, of the titles. Um, oh, or oh, of, okay, of the ch- Well, um, those those are those are the friendly for audio versions. There are some other titles that are that are not friendly for <laughs> public library podcast. Um, but anyway, he argues, quote, in ten ways that what has become suddenly normal, pervasive surveillance and constant subtle manipulation is unethical, cruel, dangerous, and inhumane. Unquote. While Anir discusses the use of social media by Russians and other bad actors hoping to change user behavior, he also argues that the current online business model, what he calls a bummer business model, (laughs) an acronym which stands for behaviors of users modified and made into an empire for rent. (laughs) (laughs) That's an amazing acronym. Well, he uses it plenty in the novel. That's, I mean, in the book, that's that's one of my <laughs> criticisms of it. Um, Lanier says that this bummer business model encourages companies such as Facebook and Google, as well as their advertisers, to modify our behavior without our knowledge or consent. It, humor aside, it is pretty scary stuff, but it also isn't without hope. Lanier believes that the best way to make social media companies change their ways is to stop using the services. He even calls himself an optimist. He doesn't believe that the entire internet is bad, or even that technology is bad, just that this particular business model is bad. Ten Arguments is certainly flawed. Because of its brevity, the arguments are not fully fleshed out, and as I mentioned before, Lanier relies too much on repetitive acronyms acronyms. Nevertheless, it may make you think in a different way about just who is watching you. I read 10 arguments during my lunch breaks, which meant I usually paired it with leftovers or hummus. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But apparently many of the tech companies that Lanier criticizes provide free on-campus lunch for their employees. In an article in Peninsula Press, one Silicon Valley employee described his favorite sandwich made with, quote, brie, apple, walnuts, some figs on there, arugula, all the good stuff, unquote. 
And that sounds like a much better option <laughs> to pair with the reading this pretty depressing yes, book. Yes, it does. <laughs> it does sound better. My last book for today is called The Watchmaker of Filigree Street by Natasha Pulley. This book is difficult to explain and describe for reasons that I, I like, like we write scripts for this and I was having trouble explaining it <laughs> ahead of time. And I'm still going to have trouble today. giving away our secrets. I know. <laughs> it's, it's how we do it. it. It makes it better. Anyway, the, the Watchmaker of Filigree Street is, it's just a darling book that I'm very fond of and happens to include a little bit of spying and is also sort of strange. So it felt like it would be a good one for this episode. Um, it's set in 1883 in London and brings together a curious telegraphist who is our hapless spy who's sort of recruited, not necessarily against his will, but it sort of becomes against his will. I don't know. He likes the guy he's spying on, so it's it gets complicated. Anyway, uh, so we've got our curious telegraphist, a Japanese watchmaker, his clockwork octopus, and an <laughs> Oxford physicist who would prefer to be left alone to do her work in peace. The plot, like I said, gets rather complicated, and there are probably plenty of plot holes to find if you care to look, but I'm just not that kind of reader, so it worked really well for me. <laughs> But judging from the reviews on Goodreads, there are plenty of people out there for whom it did not work. <laughs> uh, I think if you don't mind a little bit of inconsistency here and there, especially in favor of characters that are endearing and Oh, I'm always going to give the benefit of the doubt. To yeah, you know, it's like time travel is involved, so of course it's going to get dicey. I'm trying to keep everything together. But I finished the book and was like, yeah... I'm not going to think too hard about that. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> That's probably the kind of book you need to read after reading 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social yes. Media Accounts. Yes, I would say so. It It is it a heartwarming little book. Um, I, I really loved it. One of those books that I put down and went, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it is also another book full of British people who drink tea just about every couple pages as well as the added bonus of a Japanese man who drinks green tea every few pages. So I thought that it would be good to pair this book with a the um, with the matcha white chocolate mini Madelines. See that 10 times fast. Mm -hmm. Mini Madelines from Dory's Cookies by Dory Greenspan. I haven't made them, but they look delightful. And because the batter can be refrigerated before baking, Dory calls them classy convenience food <laughs> and for some reason that seems fitting for filigree street and i'm not sure why there's a lot that seems fitting about filigree street that i don't understand but it's just don't think about it too much and you'll be all set <laughs> <laughs> okay thanks we're ready for we're ready for a layer eat mm-hmm Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We'd love to hear your comments or suggestions, so feel free to email us at podcast at 
we record in the recording studio at the Jesmond County Public Library. You can find out more about the library, our recording studio, and the books and recipes we talked about in this episode on our website at justpublib.org. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whidden from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com.